Welcome into the Paul Kuharski podcast. Happy to be here to talk Titans with you. Brought to you by Zen Sports and Jasper's part of the 440 Sports Network. Eager to talk about reactive public relations by the Titans. Will Levis's accuracy exit strategy by guys getting cut by the Titans and a lot more. Let's take off. Titans pretend very frequently not to care about outside noise, right? They don't care what's going on elsewhere, outside. It's all about their tight little circle. Except all the control of the story about their coach's future and their GM's competence is coming from outside right now. And if they're going to have any say in those stories, it's going to be reactive, not proactive. And so rather than taking the high road and ignoring these stories, this noise, which is what they'd have you believe is their high-minded strategy and how they operate, um, they've been answering it. After a miserable, hopeless loss down in Jacksonville a couple of weeks ago, which dropped the Titans to three and seven and showed this monster gap between the Titans and the Jaguars, I felt I had no choice but to ask Mike Vrabel if he felt like his job was in jeopardy. They were so bad that day, and there was so much space between them and the Jags. Um, So he answered that question, you know, in reasonable spirits. And a couple days later, Diana Rossini, now of The Athletic, had a story in which she cited high-ranking sources, multiple conversations with high-ranking, I don't know if she said source or sources, with the team saying that Vrabel's their guy, uh, ready, steady Vrabel was going to be around, forget about the trade, a potential trade with the Patriots, forget about him being fired. He's their long-term guy. Now, the only higher-ranking people than Mike Vrabel with the Titans are Burke Nihill, the president and the CEO, who's not a football guy, Amy Adams-Strunk, obviously, who's the owner, There are five senior vice presidents who are all non-football people. Kenneth Adams, Strunk's nephew, who is the co-chair of the board of directors. But I think it's pretty clear this story or this source or these sources are are connected with Rossini to kind of calm down the idea that Vrabel's in trouble or that this Patriots trade that's been talked about so much from Boston is going to happen. Then like two or three days later, very quickly on the heels of this, Greg Bedard from Boston Sports Journal counters this story, and he says that that Vrabel's not happy, uh, particularly with his relationship with Rand Carthon, and he could try to wriggle his way out of Nashville because he doesn't like this forced marriage with his new GM. And this story doesn't make Rand Carthon look good at all. Then Wednesday, this Wednesday, today, uh, the 6th, I'm recording in the evening, Teron Davenport of ESPN.com has a piece published there out of a sit-down that he has with Carthon and Vrabel together when they play nice with each other. And it looks like a direct response to Bedard's piece. Well, if Boston Sports Journal says our guys aren't getting along We're going to put them in a room together with a reporter and show everybody just how splendidly they are, in fact, getting along. Look at this. 
And Rand Carthon does not help himself at all in this piece, by my estimation, and by the estimation of other uh, people who cover the team on a regular basis that I've discussed it with. Because Rand talks in this story about being a background guy, while in the story, he's very much at the foreground of the story. Uh, so which is it? Can we listen to you pat yourself on the back for being such a background guy during Vrabel's time of the season, game time, while you're stepping forward into the foreground? You're contradicting yourself on a very fundamental level. It's more like I'm a background guy uh, until people are saying stuff about me and my PR team finds me a carefully crafted safe situation uh, to be a foreground guy, to try to score points with my fans by playing some defense in this 1,810-word story. <clears throat> it's all about the moves he makes. I understand that. It's all about the draft picks and the expenditure of the salary cap money that they have coming up. Um, but he can't really remain in the background, can he? And um, here, here's the other thing. Yeah, Tehran basically got shafted by, by the timing uh, of, of the placement of this story because he interviewed Vrabel and Carthon before the Tampa Bay game. He interviewed them on November 9th, and this story had been put in a can. Uh, I'm familiar with, with how this works at ESPN and with other places where editors sit on something and don't see the timeliness of it. I don't know how it's any more timely now than it was then. Um, so ESPN.com did him a real disservice with the timing of the publication. Did the Titans a real disservice with the timing of publication? Um, because what it looks like to the majority of the fan base and the readers, it is to the majority of the fan base and the readers. And what it looks like is a response to Bedard's story. Oh, you say this. Well, we say this even though the actual timing of the reporting of the story was not, in fact, the case. So then, on the day of publication, in response to Tehran's story, Buck Rising said on his show on 104.5 The Zone that he's heard from more than one person in the Titans building that the way some of Carthon's work was portrayed is not accurate and that they have questions about him. So we've heard external questions from Bedard, which I've heard similar things, and now internal questions via Rising. And Carthon stepped forward to show off his great collaboration with Vrabel, but it was before this stuff came up, and he wasn't asked directly about the things we'd most like to hear from him, how his role, his role in uh, Andre Dillard as the, right, as the left tackle, what his thinking was there what his role was in the trade of Kevin Byard was. Um, I don't care whose season he thinks it is, his or Vrabel's to whatever, but if you're going to come forward to talk, at least talk about some of the things that people want to hear you talk about, not how wonderfully you're collaborating with Mike Vrabel in a four and eight season that that's uh, fairly judged by anyone who had any knowledge of the team from start to up till now, that is has been a, a disaster. So now there's a bit of a cloud, in my estimation, hanging over Carthon, and it's partly self-created. He's picking 
uh, and choosing his spots to speak so carefully, either be a background guy or don't be a background guy. You know how the Titans could have prevented this whole thing from being a big extended story and a messy conversation topic by behaving like normal people, right? If, if Frable makes one solid crack at the podium on a light mood day, and there are some of those still about the idea of the Patriots trading for him in an opportune moment, then every time that story is referenced the rest of the way, that crack would be referenced along with it, and it'll help quash it a little bit. But that's not as important. Carthon is, is more visible as a GM. You know, you just see him around a little bit at the beginning of practice, at the end of practice. He takes an occasional question, which it seemed like he would be doing during training camp before he became relatively invisible. And if we saw him just kind of, you know, doing the in and outs of of his job, talking to Vrabel, and I'm sure he's talking to Vrabel on a regular basis, but he's not, you know, coming at the beginning of practice or, or leaving at the end of practice when we might see him, which is a small thing, but a visibility thing, then, then we don't have to have uh, created stories about collaboration. We, we see something and there's some optics there that help. That'd be more significant than, than creating a sit down situation. National readers of that piece today about the Titans' grand collaboration of four and eight team are doing what? Who possibly cares how a team that would be drafting seventh is collaborating right now? And, and aren't Carthon and Vrabel past this phase where Carthon has to learn Vrabel? It's a significant section of this story about how he's still learning his coach. They've played 12 games. He's been here almost 11 months. How much of the learning phase are we still in it? Have you gotten to phase two yet, Rain? What's the, what's the slow play here? Trust me, Titans PR isn't thinking they've made any kind of gaffe here. They, they never think they've made a mistake. They always think that they've made the right play, or they certainly have never revealed any sort of error um, to, to anybody in the media. Again, Carthon said, I'm quoting the story, not Carthon. This is the time of year. This time of year is about the coaches and the players, which is why he stayed in the background after the buyer trade. Obviously, he didn't want to take any of the heat for that trade either. Trading away one of the most popular players of the entire era in, in franchise history. This time of year is about the players and the coaches, except for this long 1800 word story that I'm going to participate in that's mostly about me. And, and my head coach. And except for this story I talked to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about, about me and one of my assistant GMs when we were scouts there that has nothing to do really with the Titans. It's really about me. And it's behind the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's paywall, so Titans fans can't even read it. So that's really serving the team that I'm on now. Um, it's great that Rand Carthon's first draft looks good so far, though we have no idea how much was Rand Carthon and how much was Mike Vrabel. 
the Titans are going to blur that now so that no one can ever be held to account again like the last guy because they see how bad it is that John Robinson, we know that he was in control and he's still taking all of the fire for all of the bad moves like Monty Rice, who was waived earlier this week. Um, so we can't have that. We can't know who's responsible for things. We've got to blur that. You don't look good, Rand, uh, 11 months in, and it feels like you're kind of flailing. You do fine with the continued roster building, even if it's Vrabel who's, who's doing a lot of it, but there's, and that'll be great, but there's more to the job than that. That's the most important piece, sure, and, and keep that up. But if you're a background guy, be a background guy. And that indicates that you're going to be a background guy during Vrabel's part of the season. So how much can we expect to hear from you during your part of the season? Are we just going to hear from you in a postseason thing, at the Senior Bowl, at the Combine, at the owners' meetings? Or are you going to have a presence uh, beyond that? Um, if you're picking safe spots to talk, you look scared when there should be absolutely nothing to be scared of yet. Unless maybe you've got something to be scared of. Let's talk about Will Levis's accuracy. Um, when they drafted him, I had the same concerns a lot of people had about Will Levis, and it was about um, his accuracy and his decision-making. And both have been better than I expected. Not that I think his completion percentage of 578 is very good. It's not. It's the second worst in the NFL. Um, and that's poor. But I knew it was not going to be a strength. The thing about it is he's not super accurate. And you combine that with the Titans' willingness, eagerness to push the ball, play to his arm strength, and you know you're going to come up low. He was 484 against the Colts, which is far too low. And we saw balls out of bounds that caused an issue with DeAndre Hopkins at, at one point. And, uh, you know, even a, a couple shorter balls to uh, Tajay Spears that, that weren't easy catches that need to be uh, easier for him to corral. I expected, as I said, inaccuracy from Levis, but I thought inaccuracy would mean turnovers, and it hasn't. And that, I think, is a real silver lining here. As he sorts out how to throw the ball on target more often, he's not giving the ball away by being inaccurate. And I think that's significant. He's thrown only two interceptions, and he's got a 1.1 interception percentage. That's two picks in 185 attempts. That's not a ton of attempts, obviously, but that's the best rate in the NFL. A tick ahead of C.J. Stroud who's at 1.2%, five picks and 418 attempts, and, uh, and a tick ahead of Kenny Pickett, also at 1.2%. That's four picks and 324 attempts. Here's Mike Vrabel on missing passes without turning the ball over. Football, you know, I think that, you know, we want to be as accurate and as efficient as possible. And, you know, going back and, and looking at some of those that, you know, that, that we missed on or just, you know, giving guys a chance. And there's also a lot of really accurate, you know, good throws. And, you know, we have to help them out on protection and, you know, being available and 
be in great spots. And then once in a while, you're going to have to make a good catch to, to help the quarterback. So it, it's, it's a full body of work when you talk about, you know, completion percentage. Doesn't well, seem like doesn't seem like many though that have been nearly picked off. Is that a good sign? Getting into a little bit of a, your personal space, I feel like. Yeah, right there. Um, <laughs> yeah, certainly you want to keep it out of harm's way. We've had we talked about it, Jackson, but there's been a couple where, you know, we we've got to be careful. Um, but also, if you're gonna miss, you got to miss where it's the the receiver or, or nobody. Yes, to, to your question. Terry McCormick, bad at allowing follow-up questions. I had to hold him off there if you're not watching but listening. Uh, Rabel was referring to me like physically holding him off so I could get in a follow-up question. It makes no sense not to let a reporter ask a follow-up question if he's on uh, something where it's a two-question question because then you got to circle back to it and it's it's awkward. Just let the two questions go. Terry knows that, and I've continued to teach him after all, all of these years. So here's Will Levis on the same subject, this idea of uh, being able to, to miss a pass but not putting it at risk of being picked off, which is a whole much worse development, obviously. I think I've done a good job with it. I mean, just continuing to assess what I feel like is appropriate for the situation. Um, I think that's one of the improvements I've made, just even going back to even in college, just how I'm seeing it assessing the risk and making the throw when I feel like it's necessary um, or applicable to the situation. So definitely areas to improve in there and, and how I'm seeing everything, but I just need to keep, you know, doing a good job of protecting the football. On that, would you, would you say like your inaccuracy has been on the good side of the spectrum in that you haven't put the ball in a lot of danger in the interception? For sure. Yeah, I think I've done, I've been relatively pleased with how, how the ball's come out of my hand. And I think just uh, that knee-jerk reaction on Sunday was to just felt like, you know, just wasn't, coming out as accurately or as wasn't putting it in the spots that I was wanting to as, as, uh, as often as I wanted to, you know, a lot of young guys throw a lot of picks early, right? That that's kind of what you expect from a rookie quarterback. First time through, you go back to Peyton Manning. Uh, what was it? 98 prime example, 4.9% pick rate, 29 picks as a rookie. So I take the low pick percentage for Will Levis as a good sign. I put it right up there with the flashes of great throws we see splashed on Twitter out of every game that are the bright spots that people are saying, hey, look at these moments, you know, these flashes. These are the reasons to believe in this guy as the future quarterback of this team. And I'd say right with that, put this where he's not throwing interceptions. Even if he's missing, even if sometimes he's missing badly, he's missing badly in a way that's not being returned for six points, that's not causing a change of possession and a field flip and all of that stuff. God bless him if he, if he, even on you know some deep stuff that's generally riskier. Um, bad things are not coming out of that, and I think that's a big development. I think that's an important development. I am brought to you by Zen Sports, as you see here up over my shoulder. If you join Zen Sports, you get a $1,000 no danger first wager. So if you feel great about a bet, you put down as much as 1000 bucks on anything with odds up to plus 500 and then rest easy. You make the bet. You watch yourself win. And if, God forbid, you don't win, within 24 hours, you get your $1,000 back. This is an amazing way to start an account with Zen. So go to Zen Sports, download their app, 
can only use it in Tennessee right now. Use the code TNPAUL to sign up. That lets them know you're connected to me. And as an extra bonus, if you're not a member of my site yet, you get a free year membership to paulkuharski.com. So it's a, it's a double whammy. Um, really, really good deal at Zen Sports. Download the app and get to work. If you want to learn more about zensports.com, you can go to their website um, and download the app to start betting today. Gambling problem, call 1-800-889-9789. You must be 21 and over and in Tennessee to bet. Excellent, excellent people at Zen Sports. Please check them out. Roughing the punter. My Twitter feed since the Colts game has been filled with garbage since the Colts blocked two Ryan Stonehouse punts on Sunday. Outrage that there were not two penalties called for roughing the punter. This has been as frustrating to me this season as anything. I know it's not been from you guys who are listening to or watching this podcast. Please subscribe, like, rate while you're thinking about it, because I know you're smarter than that. When we sold the Paul Kuharski podcast to Zen Sports and Jaspers, we told them about the smart audience. We boasted about how smart all you folks are. But from when I took my job with the Tennessean in 1996, I was told over and over and over about how Southern football fans are the smartest football fans in the world. And apparently that does not apply to roughing the punter. I'm going to share with you some of what I've endured on Twitter. Getting chiggy with it said, I think there needs to be a rule protecting punters' plant legs. And Seismic Buffalo on Twitter said, if you can't touch a quarterback in the helmet or the legs, can't line up over a long snapper, blow a guy up coming across the middle, then how is going through the legs of a punter any different? Coaching was to blame, but the rule needs to be reviewed. He is defenseless. So these guys want rule changes. Yes, because there is an epidemic of punters heading to IR Let's take this to a special meeting of the competition committee and see if we can't get the rules changed this week. Right now. No. The Titans should coach their players on how to protect, and then the players should execute what they're coached to do. I know this is crazy. I know it's crazy. But all of these people should do their jobs better. Craig Aukerman did his job so poorly. The very definition for almost six years of a mediocre coach was actually fired during the season for a straw that broke the camel's back because after a career of saying all he wanted was a punt returner who could catch the ball, didn't care about the returns and all of that, just catch it. He did such a bad job with this, such a bad job with this. And with his backup holder, Mike Vrabel had finally had enough. He's not asking for a rule change. Mike Vrabel, Craig Ackerman, we haven't heard from, but I bet even he's not asking for a rule change. Stonehouse isn't tweeting the ridiculous things that you're tweeting. Everyone with sense knows what's got to happen, but not the booze guy at AMZins43. He doesn't even care about the rule. No, he says, just throw the damn flag because a defenseless punter got his legs destroyed. We see plenty of other players get the flag for less. That's all I'm saying. 
Amani Hooker's much more patient than I am with this. Much more patient. Just a quick soundbite from Amani. I mean, kind of. I mean, a lot of people don't really, you know, they see a guy getting ran into, they automatically think that, you know, it's a flag. Just uh, But, like, a lot of people don't really know the rules that much. You know, they just enjoy the game, which which makes sense. Monday night. Look, if you block the punt and then you hit the punter, you're fine. And if you touch the football before the punter even hits it, it's a fumble. And the punter is fair game. He's a football player. Apparently, all Titans fans now, because the Titans can't block, want the punter wrapped in bubble wrap and unallowed to be touched. It's very unfortunate that Ryan Stonehouse got hurt. Very unfortunate. But it's the, the blame lies not on the referees who didn't throw a flag for plays on which there were no penalty. The blame lies, again, on poorly coached, poorly executed plays by the Titans' special teams. You want to let all those guys off the hook and blame the referees? Come on now. Let's grow up. Let's grow out of that. Let, let's be big boys about all of this. It, it's uh, it's pitiful the way the Titans failed to execute these plays, and you want to uh, pull out the rule book and a red pen. I'm also sponsored. The Titans, by the way, haven't blocked a punt since October 11th, 2011, when Tim Shaw did it. Tim Shaw. That's a long time. How about the Titans, you know, get some vengeance for, for their special teams, for their fired special teams coach? I'm not saying go hurt the punter, but go block the punt from the other team. That would be a way to respond. I'm also sponsored by Jaspers. They have a happy hour from 4 to 6, Monday to Friday, where you can have some of their frosty fabrications, and then you can order some of their Mexican street corn flatbread. Jasper is a great place to eat. It's at 1918 West End, which is between Midtown and Downtown, depending on which direction you're coming. You could say it's between Downtown and Midtown. It's a great spot to eat, have a business lunch, have a dinner date, take the family there. Great drinks, great lunch, great dinner. Uh, atmosphere is perfect for anything you need. Free games there. You can play uh, Papa Shot. You can play uh, shuffleboard, a bunch of other stuff, a lot of fun, free parking. So the price is right. You're not spending a cent before you walk in the door. Prices are very reasonable for everything else. Great menu, great drinks, happy hour, as I said, from four to six. Jasper's at 1918 West End. I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm due for a trip there. I bet you are too. Check them out. I want to talk about exit strategies. Um, Jaleel Johnson and Monty Rice both cut recently. Jaleel Johnson already back. Um, he had something bad to say about the team on Twitter when he was released, kind of bitching out the offense and saying it's not the defense's fault. Monty Rice said merely, thank God, which people took as a huge indictment of the Titans. And people looked back and found that Robert Woods said, said something and somebody else. Then they lumped in A.J. Brown, who you know, used to say stuff and delete it within two seconds all the time. And he was angry over the way things went down when he got traded, obviously. And he said things um, since his new team and his old team went in vastly different directions since the trade, which is a Titans disaster. Johnson's a bottom of the roster guy. He's a, he's a body. And Rice is a third round bust in his third season. Why people are putting stock into these guys' exit um, tweets that they quickly delete 
is beyond me. But a lot of people see a real trend here. D. Chambers said it's a sign that the culture is toxic. And Warren Wilhelm said something is rotten in Nashville. Maybe there's an issue beyond losing, but you're going to need better evidence than that, gentlemen. If a player worth a shit left the team and said something bad, I'd pay attention. But Monty Rice was a monumental bust and a monumental disappointment. They're ejecting him from the culture. He was bad for the culture. He didn't seem to care a great deal about the Titans' success or failure or his performance. So if it's a sign of a toxic culture that he's uh, – Leaving the culture, I think you're, you're misreading that. Him leaving the culture is good for the culture. Him leaving the culture is what the culture needs. He never should have been in the culture. Him being added to the culture was a big mistake by John Robbins. If you're not related to him, what possibly makes you think that his exit is more suited to judging the culture than to being celebrated for no longer holding it back? That, that confuses me. So we're going to take some of the worst players on the team, and when they're released from the team, we're going to say, hey, give us your assessment of the team. That's not who I want assessing the team, right? Like um, when a good guy retires, hey, assess the team for me. But um, Monty Rice, I mean, the biggest thing Monty Rice ever did on the Titans is, is sprinted 25 yards to celebrate a special teams tackle. That's the kind of player Monty Rice was. That's not the kind of guy I'm looking for. And all he said was, thank God. I mean, that's some massive indictment. Let's see what happens to Monty Rice from here. Monty Rice, I mean, I think the first stop's a psychologist. Um, and, and I hope it helps him frankly, but Titans didn't have people get through to him. And I don't think anybody else is going to either. My thanks to Zen Sports and to Jaspers. Check them both out. Thank you for visiting with me. Please check out paulkuherski.com. Mike Herndon with a great piece this week with four things uh, that he's looking at and thinking about Blake Bettingfield with the scouting preview coming Friday of uh, the Monday night game against Miami. Don't block the box and be sure, please, please, to lock your locks.